Today we're continuing our series entitled Living Abundantly. If you want to grab your Bible and, uh, you know, Jesus said that, that he, we read it last week, but he said that he came to give life and that the life that he was going to give us was going to be more abundant. And we use that word and sometimes we think abundant life and we in our culture, we like to attach things to it, meaning saying, well, that means I'm going to have abundant wealth or I'm going to have abundant properties or abundant this or abundant that. And, 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 and sometimes God blesses us with those things. Sometimes he, he doesn't. Uh, frankly, it's, uh, if that's what an abundant life means, then a, a Christian in Nigeria that's suffering persecution uh, couldn't live an abundant life. So it has to be more than just physical blessings because a Christian in China who's uh, been thrown into prison can still live an abundant life, right? Because it's not about the things that we own. I believe that, that, it, that uh, it has much more to do with the fruit of the Spirit. And, and what we started looking at the, the characteristics of that abundant life, and we know those things as those characteristics as the fruit of the Spirit. And, and this is what grows in our life when the Spirit of God is active in our life. So I want to read what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5. He said, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, or faithfulness in some translations. Either one is a fine translation. Gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Listen, if you have those nine things, I can guarantee you, you are living an abundant life. You're living a great life because there, there, there just aren't many people in the world that have those things in their lives. And last week we talked about love, and today we're going to be looking at joy, the second of the fruit of the Spirit. So I want you to turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah, if you will. We're going to be reading in chapter 9. We're going to pick it up in verse 2. This is what it says. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you that you have broken the rod of our oppressor, that you have shattered the yoke that burdened us, that you have increased our joy. And Lord, we thank you and praise you that the battle has not been ours. The battle hasn't been won on a battlefield of soldiers, but this battle has been won by the birth of a baby. And we thank you, God, for unto us a child was born. Thank you that Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the joy of man's desire. He is the satisfaction of every need in my life. In him, there is fullness of joy. Now, Lord, I, I pray that in these next few moments that, that your spirit would commune with our spirits and that in this time together, Lord, that 
will not only receive insights, but that you would just minister joy to us. I pray that you would touch the person in this place or watching on the live stream who is least likely to be joyful today. I pray that you would minister joy to the one who is the most burdened in this place, most oppressed, the one that's most hurt. And I pray that you would minister deep joy today. I pray, God, that they would go out from this place today saying, I have never before known that joy might be mine even in the midst of my darkest hour. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. There was a man, a wonderful man of God, a, a joyful man, who died and, and went to be with the Lord. And he, he was a, a man of tremendous success, full of great talent and ability. And, and he had a wonderful, buoyant personality. And before he passed, he left clear instructions in his will that his family should not spend any more money than what was required by law in his coffin. And he just simply said it was silly to put money into a box. This is a true story, by the way. So according to the dictates of his will, his widow and his children said, this is what dad wanted, and they, they bought the least expensive coffin possible. And when they were moving that coffin from the hearse to the gravesite, one of the handles broke off. And so they placed the coffin on the sling uh, in order to lower it to the family uh, 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 before they, that was going to lower it into the grave. And the family was sitting there, seated in the chairs in the graveside as, as, what, as, as customary. And as they sat there in front of that cuff, coffin of their departed husband and father and beloved man of God, all of a sudden, j- just as the pastor stepped to the head of the coffin to, to lead the committal service, the two grown daughters that were sitting there on the front row, responsible, intelligent, articulate, spirit-filled women, just began to giggle. And their mother turned to them and said, please, what are you laughing about? And they said, mother, look, look at that handle dangling off the, ca- the coffin. Daddy would just love this. And they laughed together. What a wonderful Precious moment of intimacy shared, as it were, almost from beyond the grave with his wife and daughters. It was as if he said, let's laugh at one more silly thing before we close this out. Hold that in contrast to some video clips I saw of a movie star's 60th birthday. It it was the most pitiful, profane group of people doing everything in the world, trying to have a good time. They were just revving themselves to a fever pitch, They spent over a million dollars on a birthday party at which no one really had any fun. The camera came in on them one after another, elderly people pretending to be adolescents, adolescents that had no more idea than a goose who they were, and it was just the most absurd circus you could ever imagine, and they spent a million dollars on this one party. It was was just absurd. And, and, And here are people who spend a million dollars to have fun, and they can't. And then there are people who buy the cheapest coffin in the store, and they're laughing. And I can't help, when I I contrast those two, but ask the question, what meaneth this? (laughs) This, my friends, is the difference between happiness and joy. The woman seated there before her departed husband's coffin was grieving the partner of her life uh, a beloved man a marvelously talented talented christian who impacted his generation for christ had passed away she was grieving tears in her eyes yet 
there, there was the sound of laughter that was part of the whole ambiance of the funeral. And I believe with my whole heart that joy is the ambiance of true Christianity. Joy is the aroma of authentic faith. So I want to look at joy today. What, what, how does joy relate to God's character? Because when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, what we're really talking about, as I grow in the fruit of the Spirit, I'm going to, becoming, be, I'm going to be becoming more and more like Jesus. Because if you look at all the fruit of the Spirit, you say, what's the ultimate perfection of all of those fruit of the Spirit, you would, ha- you would come to the cl- conclusion to realize that's Jesus. So as I become more like Christ, the fruit of the Spirit grows in my life, which means that these fruit of the Spirit are a reflection of the character of God. So how does it relate? How does joy specifically re- relate to God's character? Is our God a joyful God? You see, we, we see so many Artist renderings of this great, angry, gray-haired grandfather in the sky with a storm cloud on his brow. And I mean, when you look at the face of God on the ceiling of the Sistine, uh, Sistine Chapel as he stretches forth his hand to touch the hand of the extended finger of Adam, you know, the, the, the famous painting there, one wonders if God's going to kill him or, or bless him. You can't tell by the look on his face. But throughout the Bible, joy... Is, is used so exuberantly to refer not just to the atmosphere of our lives, but also to the very atmosphere of heaven. If you read the book of Revelation, I, I defy you to understand heaven as it's revealed in the book of Revelation as anything except an absolute stomp-down bodacious fiesta. They are having a good time up there, buddy. They are having a good time. They're laughing and they're singing. There's the sound of joy and they're rejoicing. The whole idea of heaven is joy unspeakable and full of glory. The, the, the attitudes and characteristics of God are doused with joy throughout the pages of the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. In Psalm 1611, this is what it says. It says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We read that fullness of joy. There's fullness of joy. Fullness doesn't mean mean as much to us as it really ought to in the way it's used. Because we say, when we talk about full, we say the glass is full, which means it can't hold any more water. The glass is full. but so, So to us, the fullness of joy would sound like I'm full of joy from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet, and I just can't hold any more joy. But the word... Fullness means so much more than that. In in Hebrew, fullness means that which satiates or that which satisfies. So fullness of joy is a joy that satisfies me. It's a joy that satisfies me. It doesn't just fill me, but it satisfies me. How many of you have ever been full but not satisfied after a meal? Has that ever happened to anybody? Yeah, yeah. See, it's not just about being full where I can't hold anymore. This is a joy that brings great satisfaction to my life. The passage, I believe, a great way to translate it would be, in your presence, I am fully satisfied with joy. And in his presence, I find that which fully satisfies all the desires and dreams and aspirations and goals and longings of my life. In Zephaniah 3, if you'll just turn to the book of Zephaniah, this is a beautiful passage of scripture. 
Zephaniah is often called the singing prophet for, for good reason. And if you don't know where to look, uh, where the book of Zephaniah is, just go to the book of Matthew and turn left. You'll find it eventually going backwards. So uh, listen to the character of God. We, we often think of joy as being something that we have, but we forget that it's something that God has. So listen to these words, Zephaniah 3, beginning verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Now this is talking about the judgment of God for sin. And we say, what in the world does that have to do with joy? Okay, but let's keep reading. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me, for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. He's talking about a place of safety, a place of holiness. Now listen to the, the, this is the voice of God, listen. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Wow, think of that. Think about the fact that that the God who made us rejoices over our lives to such an extent that there is actually singing within the divine Godhead. What would it take? What would it be like to, what would it sound like to hear angels sing? It'd be amazing, right? But that's nothing. That's nothing. What would it sound like? To hear God sing. Wow. You see, God is a God who quiets it. He says he quiets us with his, by his love. His, he rejoices over us. Our, our God is, is not just a, a God of undiluted wrath and anger. His judgment is against sin. He will assemble the nations. He will judge. However, it says that after his fierce wrath is executed, then he will assemble before him a remnant who are broken in spirit, who are contrite in their hearts, who praise and worship him and in humility depend on him, and he will rejoice among them. God moving among his people in the midst of them, mighty to save, rejoicing over them with gladness, even to the point where he begins to sing. Now, I don't know all that passage means, but I want to be quick to, I'll be quick to say that. But whatever it means, it does say that God gets so excited over us that he sings. Praise God. I'm glad to know that our God is a God of joy. Isaiah 65, 17 through 19 is another fascinating passage of scripture. If you'll just look there quickly, it says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. 
but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No, no more shall be heard in, the, in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. So we see then that, that God is a God who longs to rejoice and to take joy in his people and in his relationship with people even as he calls them to rejoice. We also see, and you don't have to look these passages up because they're so familiar, but you can mark them down. Luke chapter 15, verses 7, 10, and verse 32. The, the, what you find there, those are the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the, and the prodigal son, you could, or you could say the lost son. And in all three, it speaks of the, of the one seeking, the one seeking the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the return of the prodigal son. It speaks of all, all of the ones, all of them speak of the one seeking as having great rejoicing. When the, when the coin was found, great joy. When the sheep was found, great joy. When the son returned home, the father ran to him and with great joy, and, and he called for what? What did he call for? He called for a party. He said, let's, let's have musicians. Let's get some fiddlers and a banjo in here and a harmonica and whatever, whatever instruments you want to include in that. He's, let's kill the fattened calf and have a good time. You know, sometimes we just have such a stuffy notion of how God feels. We just think he's just this stodgy old man up in the sky somewhere, uh, and we forget that. But, you know, I mean, listen. When, when somebody walks up to the front of this church to repent, do you think God is in heaven who, who, who cares uh, the, the, about these people enough to send his only begotten son to die for them, that he looks down on them and says, oh, uh, that's all right, good, another sinner, that's good, okay. No, no, it says when somebody walks to the front of this church to repent, God, it says that God is having a party. He's having a party. He's rejoicing. Luke 15, 10 says this. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And we read that, and I've heard this said, that the angels are having a party. The angels are rejoicing. Well, I'm sure they are, but that's not what that verse says. It's not the angels that are throwing a party. The party's going on in front of them. God is rejoicing. It says there's joy before the angels of God. What's before the angels of God? That's the presence of God himself. God himself is the one having a party. God himself is rejoicing over the lost one who comes home, and the angels join in that. But there, but God's having a party. God, God is a God of joy. And God is a God whose joy is, is not only subjective, that is, that it is within himself, but it is objective. And the object of God's joy, hallelujah, is us. That's just hard for us to imagine. When we, when, because we know ourselves, don't we? How many of you know your own sins? Yeah, yeah, we do. And it's hard for us to imagine an almighty, perfectly holy God rejoicing over me. But that's what Scripture says. He's rejoicing over us. He rejoices over his people. That's good news. Now, now what's the contrast in the flesh? It's exactly as I mentioned earlier, and I'm going to move through this quickly. The counterfeit for joy in the flesh, the counterfeit in the flesh for joy is the temporary happiness that circumstances can, can provide. Job 20, verse 5 says, The mirth of the wicked is brief. The joy of the godless lasts but a moment. In Hebrews eleven twenty five, I'm not going to read it, but you, you know the verse. It tells us that sin brings pleasure, 
but, but it's only pleasurable for what? For a season, for a short time. And, and, and when I com- contrast the abiding joy of the saint and the temporary ha- happiness of the world, the flesh, and the devil, I, I can hardly think of a, of a starker contrast than this. Hebrews says that Jesus, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Picture Jesus suspended in, in unutterable agony, physical agony and torture and in pain to, at the point of death for the joy that was before him enduring the cross. Clinging to that joy. And that's what helped him maintain and to hang on to, to continue to, to suffer for us. Saying to himself, I, I, I will, I'll be with my father soon. The angels will rejoice to see me soon. I'll take off this crown of horrible, painful thorns and I'll receive the crown of glory which I laid aside to come to earth. I'll I'll, I'll take this battered robe off and I'll receive my high priestly robe after the order of Melchizedek. I'll soon be able to to see uh, the the people I love so much adopted into the very family of God. Even as he hung there in agony, even in the midst of that moment where he cried, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Beneath that, below that, deeper than that, there is this abiding sense of the joy of the unbroken fellowship between him and his father and the, and the uh, uh, unbroken joy, the, the deep abiding joy of knowing of what he was accomplishing for you and for me. Now contrast that, if you will, with the soldiers at the foot of the cross. When you read the Gospels, you see that before they left the garrison to take Jesus to Golgotha to crucify him, the the soldiers, they also, they had a party. They beat him. They mocked him. They they played games with him. They blindfolded him and hit him and said, if you're a prophet, tell us who hit you. And they put the crown of thorns on his head. They ripped his back open by flogging. They pressed the robe into the open wounds, and then they mocked him and said, oh, oh yeah, you're the king, that's for sure. And they laughed at him. I can just, I can just see them all. I can just see the horror of these drunken, demonized, wicked soldiers laughing and slapping each other in the back, saying, look at that fool. Look, look at that fool. Can, can you imagine them laughing? They, they, they said to themselves, aren't we happy? Aren't we having a good time? The, the joy, the, the happiness, the victory of the wicked is short-lived, though. I can only imagine the moment when at their death, and this will send a chill down your spine, when at, at their death those soldiers appeared before the judgment bar of Jesus. Can you imagine the moment when they recognize him? Can you imagine the moment when they realized that the scepter in his hand was not the reed that they had placed there? Can you imagine the moment when they realized the crown on his head was not the crown of thorns that they had put there? The counterfeit of the world for joy, the the substitute of the flesh for real joy, it's really the pervasive myth of modern America. America, our culture says you only go around once in life, so... Have a party, have a good time, you know, stay drunk, as drunk as you can. I mean, boy, isn't that great wisdom? You only go around once in life, so have a party, sleep around, have a good time. The, the pervasive myth of our society is, is that to be happy, I must satisfy every indulgence of my flesh 
that I must meet the demands of the world's idea of a party, that I must do and have whatever I want. That's our, that's our culture. That's, that's why so many homes are, are, are broken because, you know, one walks away and they, and they say, well, I just want to be happy. And, and, uh, and they make happiness the, the goal. But the problem is it's a, it's a fleeting goal. It's something that you, you think you've got it and then it's gone. And so then they're going to leave that and go find, try to find it somewhere else. And they leave that and find, try to find it somewhere else. It's, it's like the addict who's, who's constantly chasing that, that first fix that they got and they're never going never gonna to find it again. That's, that's so different than the joy that, that he offers us, you know. Uh, I believe that, that, I believe this with my whole heart, and you, you maybe don't, but I believe that if you're sensitive to the Spirit, you can, you can stand in the hallway behind a closed door and listen to the people on the other side laughing, and you'll know whether it's a wholesome laughter of joy or whether it's a laughter of evil. I, I, just, I just believe this, that I believe that, that people who laugh at a dirty, dirty joke laugh differently than those who are, laugh over wholesome humor the things of the kingdom. I believe that people who are indulging the flesh, who are trying to satisfy the hunger of the flesh, they sound different in their party than those who in God have found fullness, the, the satisfaction of joy forevermore. I just, I just believe that. But how can we detect the lack of joy in our lives? And I know that sounds like a really foolish question uh, to us. I mean, well, how can I detect the lack of joy? Well, I'm not joyful. But it, is, it seems obvious, but it's just not that easy because sometimes joy can fill a life that is not robed in happiness. That, that is to say, there may be those things in my life which make me momentarily unhappy, but I still may have abiding joy. How, how can I know whether I have real joy or whether I have momentary happiness? How can I know whether I, I only think I have joy when I don't? Well, the, the first clue is this, and that is that joy is connected to grace. There is no way that I can be judgmental, judging and condemning the sins of others, maintaining legalistic superiority. There's no way that I can be judgmental and maintain my joy. You see, understanding the grace of God is, 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 the, is one of the great sources of joy in my life. And when I don't understand what God has, has forgiven uh, me for, if I don't understand the grace he's given to me, then I'm going to judge other people. And, and if, I'm, if I don't understand his grace, I'm not going to have that, that joy. Uh, the, the truth is, joy and judgmentalism are contrary to each other. Have you ever met a judgmental person that was joy-filled? I'm telling you, you haven't, because either the... I, I crowd the joy out of my life by being judging, by judging and condemning others, or, or the joy in my life will crowd out the judgment and condemnation. You know, listen, back in the day when I was a young man, right, right after the Civil War ended, the, when, I, when I received, when I received, I'm not quite that old, but days it feels like it, when I received, thank you for laughing at that, because everybody else has heard the joke so many times that they don't even laugh anymore, but but I still use it just in case somebody's new around. But when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit back in 1981, uh, there, and listen, not everybody receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit the same way. And I'm not talking about initial physical evidence. That's not, there's a whole different thing. But I'm talking about uh, your response to it. Uh, you know, some people have 
have great experience of brokenness and weeping in that moment. Other people have, you know, uh, different things. Some people might fall out under the power of the Spirit. All kinds of different things can happen. But when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I had been living uh, in, in such rebellion and under such demonic oppression that when the power of, the, of, of that was broken in my life, I was filled with joy. Man, I was filled with joy. It's hard for me to articulate the baptism of joy that I felt in that moment because I now knew that Jesus had not rejected me even though I had rejected him. I now knew that he hadn't given up on me even though I had gone so far. I thought there's no way I could ever come back home. I knew that I had a future in Christ. I knew that he was calling me to serve him even though I didn't deserve it. So for me, the baptism of the Holy Spirit wasn't... Listen, it was not for me a slow, gradual experience. For me, it was at a summer a youth camp and a summer altar, and it was Katie bar the door. You know, I mean, it was like, it was all there. And what I learned very quickly, though, after that was the, the joy that had filled my heart would not tolerate judgmentalism toward others. I remember coming back and, you know, you get this spiritual pride that comes in if you're not careful. And, and I remember coming back and, I saw a preacher doing something that I didn't think was right, and they weren't doing anything wrong. Looking back now, I look at it, they weren't doing wrong, anything wrong, but I remember criticizing that person, and here I was. You know, I mean, I'm 17. I know everything. I, I should have fixed the world back then, you know, but, but I'm pointing the finger and, and judging this person. And I remember my, my pastor, uh, you know, pulled me aside. He said, well, Dave, listen, just remember, and you probably heard this. He says, just remember when you're pointing your finger at somebody else, you've got three fingers pointing back at you. And, and it was just a reminder to me, hey, you've got to walk in grace here. You don't know that man. You don't know what's, what he's doing. You don't know what, anything about him. And yet you're, you're trying to judge him. And, and so uh, I, I learned very quickly that I couldn't, I couldn't have the joy of the Lord and my judgmentalism at the same time. You know, every time I'm even tempted to be arrogant over someone else's sins. You know what God does? God shows me photographs. Does, does God have any photographs in your life? You know what I'm talking about? Brother, he's got Technicolor movies in my life. I'm telling you right now. But the very minute, very minute I say, oh God, look at that stinking sinner. Oh, look at him. Oh, he's just a real stinker. God will agree with me and he'll say, boy, you, you're right. Look at him. He isn't he nasty. Look at that stinker. And then he'll, he'll show me a picture and say, recognize that? And I'm like, oh, Lord, don't, don't show me that again. Please, I don't want to see that again. And he'll say, how about this? You, let me just show you this movie. Recognize that? And I'll say, oh, God, don't show anymore. But, but, but he says, listen, if you'll rejoice in me, your judgment will be swallowed up in victory. And I really believe that the law and joy are contrary to each other. Therefore, here's the thing. If I live under the law... And I expect other people to live under the law, whatever that law may be, whether it's Old Testament law or rules that I've made up or that my church has made up. If I live under the law or, and expect others to live under the law, I cannot have real joy. Second main clue as to whether I have a lack of joy in my life. This is a big one. The lack of joy is indicated by an inability to laugh at yourself. When we lack joy, we tend to take ourselves way, way, way too seriously. You ever know anybody like that? You ever know anybody that when they make a mistake and, 
And, uh, and people laugh at that. They get angry instead of just laughing along. You know, I, I heard a pastor tell the story about one of the first funerals that he ever preached when he was just a very, very young pastor. And a, a relative of, of a member at his church had died, and this young pastor was invited to participate in the funeral. Now, an older pastor was the one who was actually presiding. He was the pastor of the deceased man's church. And when this young pastor met the older pastor, they just, they just sort of clanged heads right from the very beginning. The, the older pastor was very dour and sober and serious, and this young pastor was just, he was just not a proper preacher, you know? And they just clashed from almost the very minute, first minute they met. And the, the man who had died was like a saint of God. I mean, he was a wonderful man. He was 84 years old. He lived a full life. He loved God with his whole heart. And and so the young pastor got up and was talking about what a joy it was that this man had gone to be with Jesus and how he was now in the presence of the Lord. Then when he was done, the older pastor got up and preached the main message and he followed up the young pastor and he preached that half the congregation was going to hell and that God was happy about it and so was he. I mean, he was just blasting them. He, he lowered the gun to deck, duck level, to deck level, and, and they were just loaded with grape shot. And I mean, it was just hard. He just nailed them all. Well, they finished, and when they got out to the graveside for the graveside service, the young pastor said to the older pastor, he said, is there anything you want me to do here? And he said, no, no, I'll take care of this. And the young pastor said, listen, friend, I'm a guest here, and uh, I'm only here because the family asked me to come, so you do whatever you like, and I'll just stand over here to the side. And he, he said, you do that. You, you stand over there. Well, then that man, that pastor, the older pastor stepped forward. But he, but he stepped too close to the casket. And he slipped into the, into the grave. And, and he went right straight into the grave, feet first. And, and right underneath the coffin. And he was covered with all the slime and mud. And there was this old red Georgia clay all over him and he just went straight in and then he turned around and started trying to climb out and it's all just a mess and and they were lifting up the coffin to try to get him out from underneath there and and they they, they pulled finally pulled this old boy out and he's just flailing everywhere and and, and the young pastor just stood there and he just tried his best to hold it together in that moment then, then finally thanks be to God the the deceased man's brother, who was 90 years of age, standing there, leaning on a cane, he leaned over and, and slapped his leg and said, well, by George, that's the funniest thing I've ever seen. And that young pastor just completely lost it. He just lost it. And he laughed and everybody around the coffin laughed. They all laughed. And then they looked at the, at the pitiful pastor with all that red clay all, from head to toe. And you could tell that he thought there was nothing funny about it. And, and the Lord spoke to the young pastor standing right there in that graveyard, and he said two things to him. One was very practical. He said, son, when you do funerals in the future, don't get too close to the grave. That was the first thing he said to him. And the second thing was, he said, son, if you fall in, be the first to laugh. I, I really believe that most people who do not have joy have no ability to laugh themselves. They just don't. And, and if they slip on the ice, it's not funny. And if you laugh, you're going to learn some things about a lack of joy. So you, you can detect a lack of joy by this lack of sense of humor in, in them. 
And friends, listen, I believe with all my heart, God has a sense of humor. I believe that. If you don't believe me, just look at the person next to you. Every, right now, turn and look at the person next to you. And, and if the people by you are laughing harder than everybody else, you might want to check yourself out. I don't know what's going on there. But uh, listen, if you could just say this one phrase to yourself, it, it will have tremendous healing impact emotionally, uh, mentally, phys- uh, psychologically, and spiritually in your life. If you could just get over, get, get, ever just bring yourself to stand there and look in the mirror and say to yourself this one phrase, you're pretty funny and it's okay. You're pretty funny and it's okay. Sometimes you're a goof up and it's okay. And it's all right to laugh at it. It'll be a, have a wonderful effect on your life. Now, what's the damage done by lack of joy? Well, it wounds the spirits of others. It grieves the spirit of God. Therefore, the lack of joy drives up, dries up praise. It ruptures fellowship. It destroys families and it splits churches. The, the rejoicing church will be a unified church. The church with real joy will see the humor even in its wounds and its afflictions. The, the church without joy will divide over the smallest of issues because joylessness makes us brittle, fragile, and unbendable. What are the results of joy? In other words, if I have joy, what is the fruit of having that fruit of the Spirit in my life? Well, Nehemiah 8.10 says this, and you know this verse very well. Everybody here has heard it, I think. But, it, but, but that verse tells us that the joy of the Lord is my strength. We know that. And so, so if I have joy, I will grow in strength. I will grow in strength. Jesus uh, and joy gives me a, a right view of life and death and eternity. Joy gives me balance in life. I, I, don't, I don't, listen, I don't live with my joy hanging on the nail of some particular event in my life so that I, if I have a job, I have joy, or I have joy as long as I have this certain girlfriend, or I have joy if this happens, or I have joy if that happens. If, if, if that's where my joy is hanging, if my joy is hanging on any specific person or event or anything in this world, the problem is that if somebody pulls that nail out, my joy crashes to the floor. But joy always allows me to see the scope of eternity. And it allows me, allows me to see the scope of life and relationships so that my joy brings balance to my life. Joy gives me strength, even in the face of my trials. James 1-2 says this, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Now that sounds really strange to us. What? When, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Rejoice when you face trials for two reasons. One is that because I know that if I endure trials, there will be a crown of life which is laid up for me. But more than that, I know that if I rejoice when I face trials, I know that I am less likely to yield to temptation. I believe that it's very difficult to yield to the temptations of the flesh while you're affixing your affections on things above and living in triumphant praise and living in the joy of God, and that joy comes from knowing His grace, it's very hard, it's much harder to yield to temptation when I'm living in that kind of a joy. I really believe that. What happens in the lives of others when I have joy in my life? Well, joy liberates others. Joy sets other people 
free to be real. There's no way you can be real around a, a, a joyless person. Because a joyless person's a, a judgmental person. And when, when you're around a person like that, you have to, we have to play all these religious games with people that have no joy because you just don't know when they're going to lash out with you. You're always walking on eggshells around them. You, you don't know when they're going to explode on you. You have to try to figure out what they want and meet their needs and their expectations all the time and, and act the way they want you to act. And the person that has real joy, what, what a wonderful person that is. There's a story told about an old holiness preacher named Roy Nichols. When Roy was, was 95, he was still preaching almost every Sunday and even drove his own car to his meetings. He was a youthful, joyful, exciting soldier of the king. He was a wonderful man of God. Uh, he, he had grown up right in the heart of the holiness movement, which we don't often associate holiness movement with joy, but, but that's just because of a misunderstanding of holiness. Uh, and there was, but there was this great joy about him, and people just loved being around him. Well, Roy, at the age of 95, was invited to preach at a holiness camp meeting in Florida, uh, and they had also invited a 31-year-old minister who happened to be, at that time, the youngest man who had ever been invited to preach at this camp meeting. They also invited another minister who was 50 years old. Well, listen, the, the light of joy had gone out for the 50-year-old preacher. The man was the most bound-up, angry, hurting man you could ever imagine, in his eyes, everything that the young pastor did was wrong. Everything. If he called for the, for the congregation to sing a praise chorus, we, we don't sing praise chorus. We only sing hymns at this, at this camp meeting. We don't do that. If the young preacher told people to lift their hands during worship service, we don't do that here. That's wrong. And once the young preacher, he just mentioned tongues in the middle of worship service. He just mentioned it. He wasn't trying to get anyone to speak in tongues. He wasn't doing anything like that. He just said something about speaking in tongues. And this guy just, just went bananas on him. He, it was like the worst thing he could possibly have done at this holiness camp meeting. And finally, one day this young preacher, as he was walking through the campground, he was just dejected by the whole experience. And he was walking across the, the, the campgrounds and all of a sudden, old Roy Nichols comes up uh, alongside of him, and he put his arms around the young preacher's shoulders, and he said, son, let's just walk together for a minute. And as they walked, he asked him, he said, do you know anything about yellow jackets? The young preacher said, well, no, not, not really. I, I don't know much about yellow jackets. I just know I don't like them. He said, well, that's about it. He said, you know, you, you can't reason with a yellow jacket. You can't mollify a yellow jacket. You're not going to make a yellow jacket feel better about the situation no matter what you do. He said, son, there's no use in trying to please a yellow jacket. Just run and try to get stung as little as possible. He was trying to make the point that he didn't have to worry about pleasing this judgmental pastor. All he had to do was stay out of his way as much as possible and keep going. You know, a yellow jacket has no joy. He's just a mean critter. Anybody ever been around yellow jackets? Anybody ever been, had a yellow jacket swarm on you? They're just mean, aren't they? I mean, they just, they're like, look at you and say, you looked at our nest wrong. We're, let's get it, you know? It's the way it is with yellow jackets. But um, some of us, brethren, make yellow jackets of ourselves. Very, very few people in this room were born yellow jackets, 
If you're a yellow jacket, you're a self-made man. <laughs> I've heard teenagers ask things like this before. They, you know, they get around some really old, angry person, and they say, how did, this, how did this old lady get to be such an old sourpuss? What happened to her? And I've heard that uh, people say that, and I say, no, no, no. She, she didn't get to be an old sourpuss. She was a sourpuss when she was your age. She just got more sour the older she got. That's the truth right there. Joy liberates others. Joy uplifts others. Joy in relationships brings mercy and tenderness and fellowship and compassion and humility and service. Uh, joy in the kingdom unlocks power, praise, and unified ministry. People who love each other have a certain level of unity, but, but people who love God are unified by the reality that their gaze is not fixed on each other but on him. In Philippians, if you'll just turn there. They're just about ready to close. Turn, turn over there and look with me. We're just going to skip through a few scriptures in, in Philippians. I, I'm, I'm just going to read the, uh, 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 the text and, and read through it and go through a bunch of them together here just to get the mood and the spirit of this letter. I, I can't possibly read every verse uh, of scripture in this letter, but, it's, but this letter, the book of Philippians, is saturated with joy and rejoicing. Just read through the book of Philippians sometime and underline every, every derivation of the word joy. You know, whether it's joy or rejoicing or joyful or joyfully or whatever it might be. But we're just going to read a few of them. For, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Verse 25 and 26. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your pro progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. Verses 28 and 29. Without being frightened in any way by those who conquer you, this is a sign to them, excuse me, those who oppose you. I don't know where, I got, where that conquer came from. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Verse 1, chapter 3. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in his way. Uh, dear friends, verse 4 of that same chapter, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at least you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but had, you had no opportunity to show it. Joy, 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 rejoicing, joyfully, joyful. We, we say to ourselves, when you read this book, you say to yourself, man, Paul must have been really in a great mood when he wrote this letter. Woo, he must have been having a great time. Boy, things must have been really going good. He, must, he was probably rolling in the dough. His ministry must have been really blessed. I'll bet he was on like 27 television networks. Everything must have been going great for Paul when he wrote this. He was in jail. 
He was in jail. This is the greatest thing to me about the book of Philippians. I love this letter. I I love everything about this letter. I could spend the rest of my ministry preaching and teaching from the book of Philippians. But the greatest thing about the letter is not really in the letter. It's that knowing that it was written from jail where he was waiting to die. He was facing a death sentence and he was saying, I rejoice. I'm filled with joy. That's the context of all this. Rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. Brethren, we in the Christian faith have so thoroughly missed the point of following Jesus and we miss the joy that he has for us. So how do we increase our joy? I'm going to give you four quick things. The first is that you cannot increase in joy unless you realize that it is the will of God for you. It is the will of God for you. In John 15, 11, and 12, uh, John 17, 13, and 1 John 1, 4, Jesus says, I want your joy to be full. He says, love one another so that your joy may be full. You cannot increase in joy unless you believe that it is the will of God for your life to be filled with joy, and you believe that a lack of joy is actually being disobedient to God because that's what he's told us to do. Jesus wills us to be filled with joy. The second thing is to repent of situational happiness. Repent of situational happiness. What do I mean by that? It means repent of relying on circumstances and situations to to sustain your joy and your happiness. Stop relying on the job, on the bank account, on the relationship, on the circumstances. Repent of situational happiness that steals your joy in the long run. This is something that every young person needs to hear in the joy and, and, and enthusiasm after athletic events. You know, I love athletics, but remember this. As high as you get over the win, you can get just as low when you lose. That high will only last you until the next defeat. Situational happiness is contrary to the abiding internal joy which is not dependent on upon external circumstances. Third, teach your spirit to rejoice in trials, in temptations, in grief, in fear, in loneliness, in setbacks, in disappointments. Say, I will rejoice in the Lord my God. I will rejoice. Now, that doesn't mean that we do it artificially and, and fake things, and, you know, that, that, that every time something bad happens, we say, oh, thank God, my wife just died. Thank you, Jesus. No, no that is, that's just an artificial and idiotic kind of thing, right? You know, no, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to grieve in those situations. I'm talking about the ability to say, this is the worst moment in my life. I've never been through anything like this. My body is hurting. My finances are bad. My business is struggling. My relationships are waning. But the joy of the Lord still abides inside of me. I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And I have committed everything unto him against that day. That's the key source and the resource of abiding joy. School yourself. Teach yourself. I will rejoice. It's a choice I make. 
I will rejoice. Not because of my circumstances, but often in spite of my circumstances. I will rejoice because I have Jesus. I will rejoice because I know heaven is coming. I will rejoice because I know this season of darkness will not last forever. I will rejoice because I know the deliverer. I will rejoice because I'm walking with the healer. I will rejoice because I know the grace of God. I will rejoice. Teach your spirit to rejoice. Then finally, depend on him in everything. And your joy cannot be stolen because no one can steal him from you. Romans 8.31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What can separate us from the love of God shown toward us in Christ Jesus? Can angels, can demons, can armies, can tyrants, can recession, can layoffs, can bankruptcy, can life, can death, can anything? No. Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am convinced that neither life nor death Neither angels, nor demons, neither present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if I live and move in his love, and I have my being in him, then nothing can steal my joy. Nothing can steal my joy. I'm going to close with a passage of scripture that's going to it's going to bless your socks off, so I hope you wore tight-fitting socks today. <laughs> I believe that there's probably not 1% of the people in this auditorium that are really familiar with this passage because it's an Old Testament passage, and we, we do not think of this passage or much in the, in the Old Testament about the law. We don't think of it in relationship with joy, but to look at Leviticus chapter 23. When, when you begin to look at the books of the law, you don't always think about verses of Scripture uh, about joy, but Le- Leviticus 23 beginning with verse verse 39 and following it, it has to do with the commandment that God gave to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, what's the Feast of Tabernacles? The Feast of Tabernacles was that time in the Jewish calendar when the people of God were commanded to move out of their houses, to go out in the backyard, set up a little shelter, you know, put up some branches, a little lean-to or something, and live underneath that little makeshift shelter. And in the process of doing that, Remember the time when God sustained the people of Israel in the wilderness, because that's how they lived, in the wilderness, and they never lacked. That's his point. He's trying to remind them. They remind themselves that he is their strength, that he is their source, that he is their sustenance. So let's just read the commandment carefully about how to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, because it's, it's so often forget, forgotten. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in, the produce of, gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. Now, does it say fast? No, it says feast. I don't know about you, but I like feast better than fast. Can I get an amen? On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take, the first day of, uh, uh, take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. He commands them to have a seven-day fiesta. I think we ought to do this sometime. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute 
forever throughout your generations, you shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall rejoice. God says, I want to see you rejoice. I want to see a party going on here. I command you to rejoice. Now, now, now why is the command to rejoice associated with the Feast of Tabernacles? It is God saying to us, now if you don't get anything else that I said all day, get this. It is God saying to us that the secret to real joy is absolute dependence on God. He's telling them, go out there where you have nothing. Remind yourself of the times in your life when you had nothing. You had no place to live. You're wandering in the, in the desert. You had nothing. And yet, even in those times, I saw you through it. I provided for you. I took care of you. You lacked nothing. Your shoes didn't wear out for 40 years. And that, that's the biggest miracle that we often overlook. Anybody here buy, have to buy shoes for your kids? Wouldn't it be a miracle if you didn't have to buy them for 40 years? <laughs> Some of you are going to start praying now. Listen, the more I have in my arms, the harder it is for me to rejoice in the Lord my God. The more I hold and the more I have, the easier it is for me to rely on those things. But when I learn to let go of things, when I learn to realize it's not mine, it all belongs to him, when I let go of those things, suddenly I find a God who's the giver of all things. And I can rejoice in that. God says, every now and again, it's good for you to lay aside all your stuff. Get out in your backyard, with, make a little lean-to, move in there, and say, everything I have, everything that I own, all that I eat, the air that I breathe comes from God. And nothing can take God from me. Nothing. Then God says to celebrate. Rejoice in the Lord your God then you see that the joy of the Lord really is my strength. And if I say that my house is my strength or my, my wife is my strength or my husband is my strength or my income is my strength or my family is my strength or my youth is my strength or my ability is my strength or my education is my strength or any other thing, here's the thing, I may lose all of those things. But if I'm living in the lean-to of God's protective care and providential oversight, then nothing can steal my joy. And I have not only the permission of God to celebrate, but I have the command of God to celebrate. He says, celebrate, for I am the Lord your God. He wants you to live in his joy. You stand together with me. I want to pray for you, and then I've asked Maribeth to come and and lead us, and we're just going to close out the service by singing about joy. And I want you to walk in his joy. And, and, that, and this is what we have to understand. Joy is not a feeling like happiness that's fleeting. Joy is, is a decision that we make where we say, I will rejoice in Christ my Savior. I will rejoice in God, no matter what my circumstances are. And listen, I know some of you have got very rough circumstances. Some of you have gone through some really tough things right now. Some of you are dealing with issues that nobody else even knows about. You can still have the joy of the Lord. And you can make that decision to say, I will rejoice. I will rejoice because I know the God that has seen me through other things. 